Okay, so yesterday we uh, talked about the seventh jhana, what we might call the seventh jhana, what many people nowadays call the seventh jhana. And what the Buddha um, simply called the realm of nothingness. And um, and there's the possibility of going beyond that too, to a, a, a deeper, a deeper jhana, a, a more refined jhana. So we, not very optimistically, turn to the Buddha and see. <laughs> 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 uh, so again, this situation he's describing: a monk practicing, gone through these jhanas. Um, up to the realm of nothingness, the dimension, the sphere of nothingness. Sticks with that theme, develops it, pursues it, establishes himself firmly in it, and then, after a while, the thought occurs to him, what if I, with the complete transcending of the sphere of nothingness, were to enter and remain in the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception? Without jumping at the sphere of neither perception or non-perception, he enters and remains in the sphere of neither perception or non-perception. He sticks with that theme, develops it, pursues it, and establishes himself firmly in it. That's it. So, neither perception nor non-perception. Hmm. Um, What is this about? So, uh, it w- we should be very clear. You know, neither. Um, it it's not. Again, what's primary here? There's something primary that the th- the, the title, uh, the name of this realm and jhana captures. Okay, neither perception or non-perception. I've come across uh, writings and heard things that seem to emphasize or, or make most significant um, with regard to this jhana the absence of thinking or just how delicate a state it is in that any little thought will uh, decimate the state, will, will knock you out of it. As if that fact is the most significant thing, how easily a thought will disturb it. But the title is telling us, the, the, the name is telling us something. Um, and, you know, so much here, certainly with regards to this jhana, so much in relation to all the jhanas, and I would say, and maybe you hopefully are getting an inkling uh, by now, that so much um, in, in the whole of the Dharma and the whole way we understand the Dharma and approach and what we think we're doing with it and what is primary in it, so much hinges on what we mean by perception. What we mean by that word perception and how we understand it and how we relate to it. So what does pasanya is in Pali, samjnya in, uh, in Sanskrit, what does it mean? What does it not mean? We've said, we've said, what does it not mean? So if Yeah, but 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 yeah, it certainly 
as well. But uh, what I want to say right now is to perceive doesn't mean to label. Remember that? Do you remember this? I think I said sorry was a pomegranate or something. Right? So oftentimes you'll come across that as a in the list of what all these Buddhist words mean, sanya is a labeling or a remembering. Um, I don't, or I'll put it this way, we could interpret it that way, but what then unfolds in terms of the whole scaffolding and conceptual framework of the Dharma will be much, much more limited. Um, so perception is not a labeling. There's not a verbal labeling of things. That would also imply that the sheep out there don't perceive, don't think sheep have language. But they certainly know the difference between food, a human being, and a sheep, right? So they're perceiving without labeling, I would assume. So we're talking about something else here. An insect you know, maybe even an, an amoeba in some ways, Dif- differentiates between what's to eat, what's to, I don't know, do amoebas have sex? Do, do they, what's, what do I do with this? What do I do with that? Which way to go? That way or that way? Without, one assumes, labeling or language. So what is perceiving? What is perception? I'd say it's probably most helpful, uh, most congruous with uh, a whole conceptual framework and scaffolding understanding of the Dharma that will be most helpful and most liberating. If we, if we think of what per- perception as meaning something like the forming or constituting or fabricating of an object for consciousness. Do you understand what I mean by that? I think it would be most helpful and most liberating and most congruent with a really um, liberating and far-reaching conceptual framework of the Dharma if we, if we define this very basic term, perception, as something like the forming or the constituting or the fabricating of an object for consciousness. is so, so important. Do we understand just just that? So uh, we do that when there's no... If if you're really telling me that you notice as you walk from here to the dining room, every everything you notice, there's a verbal label going on. (laughs) Sarah's shaking her head. There isn't. You're still perceiving. Um, Sometimes call it recognition as if it's based on memory. That's another interpretation. I recognize an object. We can always perceive an object that I don't don't recognize what that object is. I don't recognize it. Or just that it's some kind of object. All this is perceiving. So we could say perceiving is the act of forming, constituting, fabricating an object for consciousness. And perception, as we defined earlier in the tree, we, we, I, we're using that word synonymously with... Thank you. 
experience, other, other words, experience, phenomenon, appearance, uh, object even. Yeah, object, experience, appearance, and phenomenon. Phenomenon is just a Greek-derived word, phenomenon or something in Greek means appearance. Mm. So I would use those words interchangeably. Perception to talk about the object, the experience, the, f the phenomenon, the appearance. Perceiving the act of, um, again, constituting, forming, fabricating that object for consciousness. So when we say playing with perception, we're playing with both. We're playing with the forming and the fabricating and the constituting. And of course, that does form and fabricate and constitute a different object or a changed object, an altered object, a more or less fabricated object for perception. Yeah? You understand? And sometimes it's interesting. It's like, you know, what dif what, what, what's a difference um, in terms of defining terms uh, makes? Defining terms in this way or that way can make them for the whole possibility of what the Dharma can be. So something, something to really reflect on. And, and if, you're, if you're really keen, you could actually trace it. Uh, tr have two different definitions of perception. For example, perception understood as mental labeling and perception understood in the way we've just talked about. And see what kind of Dharma is possible from both. That would be a really, really good exercise if you're up for it. <coughs> Based on that, the whole interpretation of the Dharma opens or goes in one direction or the other or closes or gets limited. Other terms take on certain meanings which um, end up being very significant, very liberating or not particularly. Anyway, so everything to me hinges, uh, certainly in this jhana, because it's, it's just in, in, the, in the name of the jhana, neither perception or non-perception, certainly in jhana work in general, and even more significantly in the whole of the dharma, the whole of the dharma. So in the realm of nothingness, the jhana before this one that we're talking about today, the primary perception, and, and actually the only perception left, so to speak, because we've kind of all the other perceptions of PT and Sukkha and space and all, they've gone. The only perception left is this strange perception of nothingness, right? The only perception left is nothingness, and that's a perception. And as we said, we try to imagine that. It's not, it's not, we're not talking about a very, very big space with nothing in it, which is what most human beings would think of when they say, can you imagine nothingness? We're talking about something even beyond that. It's nothingness. But that's, that's the, the, the only perception left then. That's the primary perception in the realm of nothingness. So that's strange enough. And now we're going to go even beyond that. <laughs> Neither perception nor non-perception, we're not even perceiving nothingness. Because nothingness, a nothing, is uh, a kind of object, con is constituted in, in the realm of nothingness is constituted, nothingness is constituted as a kind of object for consciousness, for attention, um, for the chitta. You understand? It's a, it's a some kind of a very strange thing that's a nothing. It's a thing there, it's a nothing. Here, in the realm of neither perception nor non-perception, without being unconscious, in other words, without being totally non-percipient, 
So without being unconscious, the chitta, the consciousness, is, we could say, not landing on any object at all. It's not, well, we could almost say that. It's, It's not landing on any object, not even the strange object of nothingness. It's not landing. So when there's a nothingness, or well, let's say easier, when, when, there's, when there's whatever jhana you're up to and, and is your playground, it forms an object, the primary limiter forms an object for consciousness, and the consciousness wants to really get into it and enjoy it and yummy up. It's a kind of, do you understand? There's the, the, the subject and the object. The object is the primary limiter or the jhana itself, and that's an object for consciousness. And you could use the language, the consciousness is landing on that object. Yes? And, and that's partly what attention means. Here, it's not landing on any object, not even the object, the strange object of, nof- no, of nothingness. And it's not landing in that way, moment after moment. And that's what makes it the jhana, the sort of constant burning. This not landing, this sense of not landing on any object, is the primary nimitta. In other words, in some strange way, the state itself, the sense, the fact of neither really perceiving, which means, again, neither really construing, constructing, fabricating, forming an object, nor not perceiving at all, that state, that fact, the sense of that, the sense of the mind kind of, would we say doing that or not doing that anyway, somewhere in between, that's the primary nimitta. And you could say a secondary nimitta is the sense of liberation with that. Because when the mind doesn't land on something, it's, it's not, uh, you know, like when you, when you throw uh, uh, or a hook and, and the hook lands in something, it's just not hooked by anything. It's unhooked. Not completely yet, I'll come back to that. It's not completely unhooked. But that sense of not landing, not being, there's a kind of liberation in that. That un, if I use the word un, if I use the language unhooked, you can, you can feel the relative liberation in that. A hook is a, is a, is a kind of tether, uh, a fetter, an imprisonment. So perhaps we could say the sense of liberation with that sense of freedom that comes with that is, is a secondary limiter. Who, who's old enough here to remember the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? <laughs> so for those that you don't know, it was, a, it was a series of books. I think I must have been a young teenager when it came out. And um, I was very, in this very funny sort of, what would you call it? Funny sci-fi, I guess. Yeah, funny science fiction. Yeah. Um, and so I, d- I think this was from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It could be from somewhere else. But there was uh, instructions on how to fly. Do you remember this? And it was a two-step instruction. So the first step was fling yourself at the ground. <laughs> the second step was miss. <laughs> so in a way, that's what's going on. <laughs> in a way, that's what's going on in this jhana. Uh, now, that's not really going to... Ha- well, it, later on it might help you as an instruction, but probably at first it won't. Um, but what the ground translates as here, if we take the hitchhiker's uh, instructions, uh, hitchhiker's the galaxy instructions, what the ground translates as is anything and nothing. 
anything and nothing will constitute a ground that you're going to potentially that you want to miss. You understand? <laughs> now there is a there is a sutta um, uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya uh, where the Buddha gives an analogy. I think he's talking to Ananda and. Um, and he's giving the analogy of consciousness being being liberated, liberated, un- unhooked, completely unhooked. And the analogy he gives is sunlight uh, rising in the east and coming into, uh, well, what starts off as a house uh, in the analogy. And then, anyway, it so and, and he says, when the sun rises in the east, where, where will the sunlight, which is consciousness, an analogy for consciousness, where will the sunlight land? Nananda says, well, on the Western Wall. And, and the Buddha says, well, what if there isn't a Western Wall? What if there isn't an object for it to land on? And Nananda says, well, it will, I think he says something like, it will fall on the ground outside there. And he said, okay, what if there isn't a ground outside? And then Nananda says, well, it will fall on the water, um, which I guess is the water under the ground in some kind of cosmological system. And he says, what if there is no water? And Nananda says, well, then it wouldn't land. Um, and he said, just so, that's consciousness uh, liberated. Now, actually there, the Buddha's talking about the unfabricated, which is a stage ahead of even this jhana. But the analogy works v- very closely. We're almost there in this jhana. There's something uh, almost, but not quite, analogous to uh, analogous to, to the Buddha's analogy of, of nirvana, of the unfabricated, of... Uh, what remains beyond cessation. Um, or we could put it, we could uh, language it, um, it's not landing on anything, we could say um, we're not fabricating, the, the, there is not the fabrication at that time of any perceptions, or all other perceptions have been unfabricated, except two perceptions. One is um, the very state, this sense of not landing, this sense of not, not quite perceiving, and yet not quite not perceiving. That, that's sort of a perception. It's a, a sort of remnant of a, or just on the edge. It's the, the, the very perception of not really perceiving, but not really not perceiving. So that's one perception. The other perception that remains is time. Now I'm telling you this, but it it may or may not occur to a meditator in this state that that's still that's still there as a perception. There is a sense of this not landing happening in time. It happens in this moment, and implicit in this moment. Even though I'm so so in this moment. There's still implicitly and experientially a past moment and a future moment. So this not landing and this state is ongoing in time. And that's a very secondary perception. Probably most people wouldn't even notice it uh, as a perception unless you compare it with a totally timeless sense, which comes later. Um, so I'm kind of telling, telling you that now. There's two, there's two perceptions we could say remaining there. No perception except uh, of anything, not even nothing, and nothing would be a kind of something. No perception of anything um, except the state, this strange not landing, this strange not 
really perceiving, not really not perceiving. And secondarily, that that is happening in time. And it's this latter aspect as well that's, uh, actually both of them, but the, the latter aspect, the happening in time, that I would say is a fundamental difference um, between this eighth jhana and a state of cessation or complete unfabricating. Actually, they're both significant, but let's, I want to point to that. So, in, in this state, in this jhana, there, there's a sense of something, another way we could just phrase it, is a sense of something so, so ultra-refined, so, so ultra-refined, it's really on the edge of perception. And that's, you know, one way of sort of seeing what's happening. It's, it's neither, uh, it's something so ultra-refined, we can almost barely say it's a, it's a thing. To, to be perceived, it's an object, a phenomenon, an experience, an appearance. It's so ultra-refined, there's almost nothing left of a perception, in, as we construed it earlier. And as, as we said, secondarily, there's a sense of release, of being released from perceptions. Ajahn Lee, I mentioned him some point earlier in the retreat, he was the teacher of the teacher of one of my teachers, a Thai monk in the 20th century. Early 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 twentieth century, and he he kind of phrases it: the the chitta, the mind, and the heart are kind of in this state. They're struck, it's struck by its inability. The chitta is struck by its inability to decide if it's a perception or not. It it's it's absolutely right, but to me, it just maybe it's a translation. It just sounds all very clunky, like one sort of hmm, I, I don't know, is this a uh, and, and it's sort of pondering like that. It's something extremely, really uh, subtle is going on. But it's really that it does capture something of it. So, again, we can think of this business ultra-refined, uh, and we can connect that, as we have so far on the retreat, with the, um, uh, the, the whole spectrum of refinement, which I talked about, you know, that's kind of a very fruitful way to understand what's happening through the eight jhanas. They're really a spectrum of more and more refinement, which is just the same thing as saying it's a spectrum of progressive removal of what is gross, right? Because that's just what refined means, to refine some things. Which is just the same thing as saying it's a progressive um, non-fabricating, a progressive unfabricating. Um, because we would expect... Uh, the, the grosser thing to be what's most fabricated. Don't fabricate that, it gets removed, the thing's more refined. And then the next next uh, gross thing, uh, don't fabricate that, gets yet more, more, that gets removed, gets yet more refined. Do you understand? Yeah. So if we, if we think in detail, let's just see. So the first jhana is a refinement. What's been removed at the first jhana? The hindrances, yeah. Th we could say, the grossness of the hindrances, and they're, they're gross, they're gross phenomena. The, the grossness of the, f in the first jhana, the grossness of the hindrances is removed. There's that kind of refinement. We could just say, to say the same thing, the hindrances are not being fabricated. In the second jhana, we could say there's a removal of thought, and we had this problem with vitaka and vichara and how you're going to translate those terms. It's certainly discursive thought. That grossness is removed, it's not being fabricated. In the third jhana, 
what is removed, what is not being fabricated. Piti is not being uh, fabricated. Piti is removed. Rel relatively subtle compared to the hindrances, compared to the gross body sense, but actually now um, the most gross thing there. It's then not being fabricated. In the fourth jhana, uh, sorry, in the third, where are we? Yeah, third jhana, fourth jhana, even the subtle, um, even the sukha is not being fabricated, right? So that's being removed. That's the gross thing being removed. But actually that's something very, very subtle at that point. In the fifth jhana, even a subtle sense of materiality. Remember we talked about these three levels of being. There's gross materiality, uh, the kamaloka world. There's uh, the world of subtle materiality, the world of the rupa jhanas, the, the, the subtle form, what's called in Buddhist cosmology. But even the subtle form is removed. So even subtle materiality is not being fa fabricated. Even that relative grossness, which is actually very subtle, is being removed in the fifth jhana. And we can keep going, etc., etc. In the seventh jhana, space is not being fabricated. In the eighth jhana, not even nothingness is being fabricated. So you see how this refinement, removal of the gross, not fabricating something, all goes together. And then what happens after this jhana? Now we're not even fabricating nothingness. Now we've gone beyond that. Is there some further non-fabricating that's possible, which hopefully we'll get to. Hopefully we'll get to. So this refinement is is really a sort of very um, mm, remarkable feature of this jhana. Very very remarkable, um, and and in practice it can help you kind of to find or notice or tune to focus on, if you like, the most refined perception. So again, you could do this in in the state itself before it's quite consolidated and come together. Just tune to the most refined there. Keep tuning to the most refined. That will um, that will help consolidate it. The most refined, we could say perception, but it's not even quite a perception. The most refined thing, object, that doesn't really do it. The most refined sense, the most refined level. I don't know. Word, words really start to fall apart at this at this level. Uh, it gets really hard to put things into language. But the tuning to whatever is most refined there can help consolidate it if it's not already consolidated um, in, in a session. So we can kind of ref refine the whole experience and move it into the more pure uh, realm of neither perception or non-perception by, by very gently, very gently looking uh, for, very delicately um, uh, yeah, looking for, listening for, attuning to, putting our antennae out for um, uh, that whatever is most refined. And that's a very subtle, sensitive, uh, it's a delicate and gentle process. Now one can even perhaps start doing that in the realm of nothingness. Now, when that's established, when you've got some experience with that, then maybe kind of looking for what's the, the most refined in there, ultra refined. And again, it, it may start, um, what would we say, maturing, purifying from that, moving on from that, just from that attending to the most refined level, and that amplifies it, as we've talked about all the way through the retreat. Um, so that's with ex with experience that may work that way and may take take you to the uh, realm of neither perception or non-perception. Uh, so I was trying to find the sutta and I 
well, anyway, I couldn't find it. But uh, again, the Buddha, this is an escape. It's an escape, nisaranam. It's an, a release of awareness. Again, he uses these la- this language a lot. It's almost a total release from perception. Almost a complete not being hooked, not casting out a hook and finding an object. Almost a total release from perception while there is still awareness. So we're not talking about general anesthesia or anything like that here. Uh, what I was looking for and couldn't find is, is there's some languaging. So remember we talked about, the, the, the Buddha talks about the jhanas as perception attainments. Do you, me- do you remember this? I couldn't remember if then he says the highest perception attainment is the realm of nothingness. In other words, this one, because it's neither perception or non-perception, actually doesn't qualify as a perception attainment. I couldn't remember if, or if he s- counts this one as, as the uh, highest perception attainment. It doesn't really matter. The, the principle is the same. Um, I do think somewhere or other he calls this one, the neither perception or non-perception, he calls it the, the summit of perception or the limit of perception, I think. Um, but then we can go beyond this. And hopefully we'll get to that tomorrow. We can even go beyond this. This, uh, this much unfabricating, this limit of perception, this summit, this perception attainment, if, if that's what it's called. Uh, there is, again, with the sense of refinement there, um, and somewhat akin to the fourth jhana and, and some of the other jhanas, there's a real sense of purity here. There's some, something in the very refinement itself, in the stillness, um, extremely pure. It, it, again, these words don't quite capture. Uh, it's so The experience itself is so different than normal, normal experience that words where w- which we use for normal experience get, get quite clumsy at this point. But I think that's quite a good word. There's something very pure about it. It feels very pure. Refinement, purity, release. These are all part of the texture, let's say, of, of, of this realm. And there is something, I think, and then these words start to sound really ridiculous, um, amazing and jaw-dropping. Um, so it is amazing and kind of jaw-dropping but but the whole thing is is at this point very very delicate very because of the refinement it's very very still that um it's almost like one is uh, awestruck without without with very little reverberation going on in the being because that would disturb things so if one can have one's jaw-dropping without <laughs> without much reverberation one would but in the refinement, in the purity, in the release, there is something uh, really amazing there, I think, exquisite, beautiful. Um, but these words don't, don't really capture it. It's very different, as I said, from normal experience. We're really talking about uh, something quite different. And in some ways, I think, in a lot of ways, at least that's my sense, in some ways it's, it's quite different even than other jhanic experiences. There's a kind of larger quantum leap here, I, th- I think. Um, the after effects on perception, um, w- one of them could be that with regard to what's going on in the inner and the outer worlds, how my mind is, how my body is, what I see out here, what I sense out here, there can be just a, a, a sense in the after effect m- of perception. It's, um, it's just what's happening in the realm of perception, all this, all this stuff. My mind is foggy, my mind is clear. I've got a pain in my tummy, I've got a headache. There's this perception, that perception. It's just 
appearances, it's just what's happening in the realm of perception, which is very different than this is what's happening. It's just what's happening in the realm of perception. So in that way, do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. In that way, there is this kind of even deeper relativizing of our phenomenal experience, internal, external. And so with that, through this relativizing, comes this kind of really effortless equanimity with regard to the things of this world. Uh, the eight worldly conditions, praise, blame, pain, pleasure, headache, no headache, wh whatever it is. Effortless equanimity comes partly from that after effect on perception. It's just what's happening in the realm of perception. It relativizes it. Or these are just perceptions. They're just perceptions. Whatever, whatever I'm perceiving, my tummy ache, my headache, my foggy, foggy mind, this or that in the world. They're just perceptions. It's not that things are really otherwise, like I have a foggy mind, but really my mind is clear, or um, really it's this or that other, but they're just perceptions. So it's not that another perception is true instead. So how do we, how do we, how do we open the door here? How does the door open for us? Um, again, you know, one one way, and perhaps the the safest and best way, perhaps, is just letting it naturally mature from uh, hanging out as fully as one can, as wholeheartedly, as attentively, as absorbedly as one can in the realm of nothingness. And in time, that it will it will mature. So that's one way. I think sassy probably has to become assy at this point because suffusion really pertains to the energy body experience. Um, I mean, maybe there's maybe there's a way we can talk about a different kind of suffusion. But in a way, we can uh, the other the others are more important. Absorbing into the nothingness. Uh, sustaining the attention, sustaining the sense of nothingness, the intensity, which is not so important, and the enjoyment, which is very, very subtle. So the assy rather than sassy, perhaps. Working with that, getting into it, hanging out over and over and over, and at some point, it should mature. Second possibility for uh, getting there is, again, from that same sutta, the Anandjasapaya Sutta, where the Buddha is describing insight ways of looking that uh, lead to the immaterial realms, the immaterial uh, dimensions. And basically, so he's gone through his ones that we talked about yesterday with regard to opening up the dimension of nothingness. And now he says, then again, the disciple of the noble ones, again, there's that word, considers, employs, engages subtly an insight way of looking thus. Um, all sensuality, all sensual perceptions, all perceptions of forms, um, which includes um, the perception of, of jhanic forms and jhanic experiences, uh, perceptions of the um, fifth and sixth jhana, in other words, perceptions of infinite space, perceptions of consciousness, and the perception of the dimension of nothingness, 
all our perceptions, all of that our perceptions, where they cease without remainder, that is peaceful, that is exquisite, i.e. the dimension of neither perception or non-perception. Practicing and frequently abiding in this way, his mind acquires confidence in that dimension. In other words, it's just the same thing. Perceptions are not peaceful. And all as w- as it's just the same thing as, as the instruction for the realm of nothingness uh, that we t- talked about yesterday. I've just included the perception of nothingness. I've just extended it to include the perception of nothingness. Okay. Again, it very, very powerful. If you can get the hang of these kinds of insight ways of looking, very, very powerful. I don't need to repeat, we're talking about something very agile here and an actual, uh, not a whole big thinking thing, not a whole big philosophy. It's a, it's a very uh, light tincture in the way of looking that one's employing again and again. By way of looking means way of relating, way of sensing. Um, now, one could do that. This perceptions are not peaceful. I want something peaceful. Um, all those perceptions are not peaceful. I want this, what is exquisite, what is peaceful, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. One could do that in and from the realm of nothingness. One could do start doing that in the realm of nothingness, start employing this insight way of looking. Or actually, you can do it from anywhere. You could do it from right now, just whatever is in front of me, foggy mind, etc. And again, you know, uh, say, uh, contradict myself, say so much, oh, this, you know, jhana will depend on the one before it, and the depe- that will depend on the maturing of the one before it, etc., etc. Uh, after you've got a hang of all this, sometimes there will be plenty of times when you sit down and uh, body feels funny, mind feels blah, 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 and you just start on that be- very discomfort of body and non-settledness of mind and non-clarity of mind, and you just start employing an insight way of looking like that, and lo and behold, you end up in, in the eighth jhana. So it's not, n- it's all in the, in the art, in the trust, in the confidence, primarily in the art. Also in the familiarity, that's much more likely to happen if you have some familiarity beforehand with the neither perception or non-perception. But, you know, it's definitely not going to hurt to try such a thing. Okay, and you're too locked on where it might end up. It's still practicing a very powerful insight way of looking and see what happens. It will be, as we will return to, it's going to be connected with the whole, the whole uh, spectrum and the whole process of unfabricating. So whether I actually end up in the eighth jhana is, again, less significant than what I learn through employing insight ways of looking and seeing what they do and understanding what they do and adding two and two together and getting four. Right? That's much more important than whether I have achieved eighth jhana and I get my eighth jhana badge. Yeah? Um, it could also arise or it can also be helped and by a similar reflection, just a perception, just a perception, which again was very similar, uh, was exactly what we uh, uh, listed, uh, included in the list we gave out yesterday. It's just a perception. And again, that could be in and from the realm of nothingness. This too is just a perception, this perception of nothingness. Um, and just a perception there means, again, fabricated, right? It's just a perception means it's fabricated. That's the, sh- that's the short, uh, the small print for, for just a perception. Or, again, you can do that from anywhere. Again, I start with my uh, 
feeling body and not feeling so good and the mind is uh, just a perception whatever comes into consciousness whatever the whatever perception there is just a perception just a perception meaning it's fabricated it's fabricated it's just a perception and that will start if i'm if i'm doing it right if i've got the art right of that insight way of looking it will unfabricate and because all this is related on the spectrum of unfabrication it may uh, open up the realm of neither perception or non-perception so I could do that from, from the realm of nothingness or actually from anywhere, from a very ordinary state of consciousness, even from the midst of the hindrances. There are also plenty of other ways of looking that one could uh, kind of um, adopt or train on, on the object of the realm of nothingness. But I, I've talked about them elsewhere. I'm not going not gonna to mention them. The slight... Um, slight risk in those last three I've listed so either that perceptions are not peaceful perceptions not peaceful that one or just a perception that one or other insight ways of looking um, is that they might there they could be uh, sometimes so powerful that they even overshoot the eighth jhana and you get even more unfabricated it's possible um, so there's those four. Then there's, um, remember I said, I think it was very near the beginning of the retreat and talked about the jhanas end up being, uh, the sense we can have is just that they're there already. They're in the air. They're frequencies. They're radio frequencies. And we can just tune, tune our dial and find that frequency. So similarly with uh, this, neither perception or non-perception, it's kind of like a radio frequency or radio station. Um, and when we have a memory of it, in other words, when we've gone in and out lots of times and really gotten more familiar with it, we can just, from memory, just tune to that frequency again. Um, And of course, that's very related to just the, the sort of whole mastery thing and it, uh, you know, opening the door, or the door to this realm opening through subtle intention, very similar. Um, someone told me a little while ago um, that their way of working was in the realm of nothing, their way of moving from the realm of nothingness to the realm of neither perception or non-perception was um, in the realm of nothingness to just introduce a little a little very subtle sort of thought or intention really might there be perception without without this object of nothingness and it was just a kind of invitation might there be a kind of perception without this uh, nothingness as an object and that that would um, that would help open it up for them it might be it might be also um, that some people are kind of able to find or then tune to and open to, I don't know what to call it, a level of the mind or a part of the mind, part of the chitta, that already, right now, or so it seems, is, um, is not perceiving, but not, not non-perceiving. It's already neither perceiving nor non-perceiving. Sometimes that's possible. And then it's possible to find the now in it, make that very alive, present, now, now, now. The sense of that happening now. And, and refine it in that way. So there's a part, or it can seem there's a part or level of the mind that's kind of, that is, even now, not engaging in perception. 
is free of it or is not interested in perceptions. It wants to be free of perceptions, perhaps. Um, and again, unhooking from perception, or perhaps it's already unhooked. There's a very subtle sort of hidden uh, dimension, but finding that, and then that can be amplified, perhaps. For some people, that will work. And again, that's something that could work from any state of consciousness, from a normal state of consciousness. Of course, the grosser the state of consciousness, the more turbulent it is, the harder that will be to do. But, you know, sometimes you get surprised with these things. You get very, very surprised at what's possible. So these last three that I've mentioned, either tuning to it from memory, or the subtle intention, or this kind of very subtle question, is it possible to perceive right now without this nothingness, without this object of nothingness, that one, or this kind of finding a level of the mind that's already uh, kind of neither perceiving nor non-perceiving. All of them imply and need, I would say, uh, some confidence that there is this possibility of neither perception nor non-perception. Um, and the confidence give, helps it, this method, these methods to work so that we can kind of fish for it. And we have confidence in our fishing. And by fishing, I mean an ultra-sensitive, subtle re uh, uh, receptivity and attunement. And through that, it can emerge. So again, though, there's, there's an issue here, you know, with uh, some of these methods. So uh, if, if, if I have an employ an insight way of looking, perceptions are not peaceful. They're not peaceful. I want what's peaceful. Let me... Let me uh, that's not peaceful. Any perception is not peaceful. If I employ that method, if I employ um, this tuning to a part of the mind that's actually not engaging in perception or interested in perception, um, and maybe some of the other methods, is there the possibility of aversion? Is there the possibility of aversion to perception, which means aversion to experience, appearance, objects? Yes, there is. So what we're talking about here, again, it's so important to emphasize in these insight way of lookings, if there's a version mixed in with it, it, it sends the whole thing in a very different direction. It stirs things up in a very different way. So what we're talking about is an insight way of looking that doesn't have aversion in it. The aversion needs to not be there. So, you know, the Buddha talks about, when he talks about insight uh, on several occasions and, and the sort of the way uh, some some streams of practice mature, when he talks about the way some streams of practice mature, he uses the word disenchantment um, and that the practitioner becomes disenchanted with everything, actually, with the, the whole world of phenomenal experience, inner, outer. There's a disenchantment with sense... Uh, sense objects, disenchantment with mental objects, disenchantment eventually with the jhanas, disenchantment eventually with the formless jhanas, all that. So that word occurs relatively frequently. Um, some maps of uh, the way insight progresses or, or, the, or the stages of, of insight um, really emphasize this quite a lot and emphasize that a practitioner practicing very deeply 
um, goes through a period or even recurrent periods of extreme disgust and uh, uh, repulsion at, the at everything. The whole world of um, appearances, inner, outer states, um, mental objects, physical objects, the whole is disgusting and repulsive to them. And there's a lot of agitation often with that. It may be that someone experiencing that sort of thing, it may just be that aversion and neurosis have gotten tied up in their practice. And one is deciding to view it as being on the edge of awakening and etc. But actually it's just aversion. I'm aversive to my body. It's not great insight into dharma or something. It's just there's aversion there. Or well, there's a kind of neurosis. And there's a, sometimes there's a lot of encouragement for very high energy, high intensity, high intentness in, in practice with a kind of micro sharp focus. Uh, all these things, intensity, energy, uh, micro fo focus building up with this teaching about disenchantment giving pr given primary place. Actually, aversion gets mixed up in there and the whole thing it just spawns cycles of dukkha uh, that may have very, very little to do with liberating insight. But one might have heard that they have to do with liberating insight and so one just goes round and round in that. Are they liberating? Is it liberating? Or are they dependent arisings? If I look a certain way, I get there's a whole thing about playing with perception. If I look a certain way, I get a certain result. If there's aversion in my looking, I get a certain result. If there's neurosis and repulsion, I'm going to get a certain result, a result in my perception, in my sense of things. Do you understand? This is, in some circles, this is a really, really important thing to consider. I have to understand dependent arising, the dependent arising of perception. And if my whole mode of working in insight is not, is not taking the inquiry into the dependent of ari arising of perception, is not taking that as central, I've just got an idea, I'm going to laser beam through this and whatever I hit is closer to the bottom layer of rock and that's the truth. And eventually I'll re reach that truth or reality. And I'm not inquiring into dependent arising. Do you understand what I mean by this? This is, to me, this is the most important thing. If I don't, if I'm not thinking that way, I go back to what I said at the beginning, what's the conceptual framework? And is the conceptual framework set up to really liberate or is it set up to take me um, in in directions where I don't understand fully what is happening and what my experience is and why this experience arises now and why that experience arises at another time and why this experience arises or doesn't arise. So we can certainly set up and people do a whole, a whole process of insight and stages of insight and there's very, very little consideration of dependent arising. It's almost like it's just a thing on the side. To me, then, there isn't the dependent arising and emptiness are almost synonymous, almost synonymous. Practically, until the very last levels, they're synonymous. So, if, if I'm not inquiring into, I, 
I wouldn't, re if I'm not including that as kind of the central um, theme and scaffolding of my meditative inquiry, then it's possible that whatever insights I have have very little to do with emptiness, as I would understand it anyway. Um, so there is, I think, I remember coming across it once, and I can't remember where it is. There is a, a, a sutta in the Pali Canon, I think in the Pali Canon, where two old monks are talking, and it's not the Buddha, I can't remember who it is. Two old monks are talking, and they do describe a process uh, of these stages of insight that go, um, and they go through um, something like disgust, etc. There's no place I'm aware of where the Buddha describes that, but it may well be one of the things, again, that's very, very emphasized in certain, certain texts like the Visuddhimagga or the Abhidhamma. Um, and then, and then that gets like this one instance of these two old monks talking becomes in some in some paradigms in some models this is this is the way insight unfolds. These are the stages of insight, as opposed to this is what will happen if you look this way. This is what will happen if you if you conceive this way and if you look this way, and if you conceive another way and look, this is what will unfold, etc. So the stages of insight, it's a, st a, a possible model of stages of insight if I look a certain way, usually prioritizing impermanence uh, and micro-focus, etc. So I'm mentioning this because I know some of you have run into this and some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Doesn't It may or may not be useful at some point. Um, it is true, somewhere or other the Buddha says, there are four, basically there are four ways to liberation. You can choose the, um, the path that is um, uh, pleasant, it's a pleasant path and it's long. Or you can choose a path that's pleasant and short. Or you can choose a path that's um, unpleasant and short. Or you could choose a path that's unpleasant and long. Um, but I actually think that what I'm trying to say now actually goes beyond that, because to me, if it doesn't include this inquiry into the dependent arising of my experience now, dependent on my way of looking, if that's not in my inquiry, I'm, it, you know, th the, the question would remain, I'm not saying it's impossible, the question would still remain for me, does that path open up uh, a full understanding and a really deep understanding of dependent arising and emptiness. That would be a question I would have. I, I would say um, most definitely that um, insight and practice and the path um, can be m mostly fun. I, I would absolutely definitely say that. Mostly delightful, mostly characterized by a sense of release and relief and some degree of liberation now as I'm practicing. I, I would say that. Um, and it's part of what I mean when I say, c can we bring some intelligence to this? Can we bring some intelligence to these sort of very basic questions or intelligence to how am I practicing? It, it's really, really fundamental. Um, and we talked very briefly about what's the definition of insight. Well, we can define insight in all kinds of ways, all kinds of people do, if you, if you listen even just to enough Theravadan-based dharma. There's lots of definitions of what insight is. But one way, and the primary way I find helpful, 
well, actually, I, I would like to keep a few ways open, but one of the ways that I would particularly like to emphasize is insight means ways of looking that reduce clinging, which means uh, increase letting go, um, in the future, for the future, but also now, right now, and even primarily now. That's what insight is. It's adopting ways of looking that liberate and that primarily liberate right now. That means all these insight ways of looking that we're talking about, we'll give examples of, and there's loads more um, we could talk about, they should feel liberating. They should feel like there's a relief, a release, a delight, a beauty, an opening, a peace, a joy that comes with them. If they're not, then uh, they're not, and they can still be insightful, but they're not the kind of insight that I'm, I would like to emphasize, put it that way. Um, so if we define it that way, then actually the whole, and, and we kind of use that as, let's say, the, the primary understanding of what we're doing, then the whole path just, it, it does not need to be this whole contracted thing of sitting through uh, pain and all these eruptions of, of difficulty. Do, do you understand? So again, some of these themes uh, carry over from these different different uh, jhanas. Um, in a way, there with that with that insight way of looking that the Buddha gave here, perceptions are not peaceful. I want what's peaceful. That is peaceful. The realm of neither perception or non-perception. Um, other times, the Buddha says I couldn't find the whole quote, but it's a very common, almost stock formula. Perceptions are dukkha. Perceptions are a hassle. He doesn't say quite that word, but um, perceptions are a boil. You know what a boil is? Like a big, painful pimple, big zit, you know? <laughs> a boil, a dart, an arrow, a cancer, a disease. And then he goes on. Per this is what perception is. <laughs> it's extreme language. Or even when we just say perceptions are not peaceful. Um, again, there's the danger of that tipping us towards, leaning us towards a dualistic conception, a dualistic philosophy, but also a dualistic sense, more than just an abstract intellectual philosophy, a dualistic sense, um, or a dualistic lived preference even, uh, away from this world. And the, well the world is perception. The world is perception. What else is the world if it's not perception, phenomenologically speaking? Appearance, experience, objects, phenomena. The world is perception. So if I start to say perceptions are a boil, a dart, a cancer, a dukkha, it's basically saying the world is. So we might get again here a tipping, a dualistic uh, preference and tipping um, away from the world and in preference for this um, subtler realm free of perception. Even the idea or the way of looking, perceptions are fabricated, they're empty too. Um, sorry, perceptions are fabricated, they're empty. That also will, um, if we don't kind of fully understand what we're doing there and what it means um, uh, to fully to, to say that something is fabricated, there's a danger too of dualism there. So fabrication is an, an interesting word because in English, I don't know how it is in other languages, but in English, a fabrication is also is a lie. We, we say 
is a fabrication. I don't know. Is it the same in other languages? Yeah, okay, in some languages. Yeah, thank you. In some languages. The same. So the, the word fabrication is very interesting. It, it, it connotes an untruth. So I, I use it partly because it connotes, connotes that. It's just that if we really take it deeply, we go beyond that notion of untruth. We take it, but we hold it provisionally, and we go, go even beyond it. So it has a derogatory connotation. Fabricated, fabricated, fabricated. There is this derogatory connotation. If I'm adopting an insight way of looking and saying, it's just a perception, it's fabricated, it has got this slightly dismissive, it's a lie, it's not true. Do you, un- do you understand? Yeah? Um, but I need to understand more deeply. I need to understand dependent arising and emptiness more deeply. Through, not just intellectually, but through the meditative, the lived meditative exploration. I really need to feel this, see this, sense this, watch it work in action and feel its effects. When I do this, this happens and it feels like this. And the intimate experience of that. If I take that far enough, it goes beyond, I would say it definitely goes beyond any notion of duality or hierarchy there. The whole understanding, when I explore it that way, the whole understanding of what it means to say something is empty or a fabrication, it goes, it's, it's not dualistic. It's almost the opposite end of, of du- of, of, uh, from dualism. We could say we, be- we get a sense of being so profoundly intimate with... Uh, the world of experience. That's not even comes close as language. The world intimacy doesn't, doesn't come close. Something even more intimate than the word intimacy can c- possibly connote. We participate in the, in the co-fabrication of, of the universe, of the cosmos, of the world, of things, of life. But even that doesn't quite do it because we have a certain notion of what the word participation means. We participate in the magic of the dance and the uh, co-arising of subject and object. We participate in a way that's, again, I, there's, no, there's no word for the depth. Participate, intimate, they come sort of close, but it's even deeper. Language is based on notions of subject and object, and when they start falling apart or collapsing into each other, not into some oneness, they're neither one nor two, subject and object, nor nothing nor many things. They're not zero, one, two, nor many. The language is based on there's this and that. There's a subject and an object. So the whole language of intimacy, participation, it, language cannot cope a- at this deep level. But if we say the profound sense of participation in the, in the magic of the co-arising of subject and object, the magic of the co-arising of the appearances and awareness, the appearances of appearances and awareness, of self and the world, the magic of that, the beauty of that, somehow we're completely uh, implicated, interwoven with that in the most um, gorgeous and blessed ways. And this is very far from dualism. If one goes deep enough into into this, again, in just into this same same investigation into fabrication and dependent arising. I don't lose sight of that. 
if I just hold, hopefully we'll get to this tomorrow, if I hold, if I just a little bit investigate fabrication, a little bit investigate dependent arising, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get this, uh, this gorgeous full blossoming of all this. And <coughs> again, similar themes. It should be, it should be the case with this realm of neither perception or non-perception. And it should certainly be the case that the more we understand and the more we open to um, the emptiness of the world, it should be the case, um, and I would say it is the case, that um, if our conceptual framework doesn't get in the way, remember? How much depends on that? can have all these wonderful, wonderful experiences or frightening experiences or amazing experiences, just strange experiences. But if I'm not taking care with my conceptual framework, my big picture, my understanding of what I'm doing and what's going on, those experiences can deliver very, very little or actually deliver what is really not helpful. So even more than the experience, uh, the understanding and the understanding of the conceptual framework. But it should be that experiences at this level of this jhana and deep emptiness, etc., that they, uh, the emptiness of the world, one sees that, but they uh, actually somehow um, open up even further, increase our love for the world, our love and compassion for the world. It should be, it should work like that. The heart opening in that way, sensing things in that way, touched in that way, becomes tender, open, at a whole other level, is wonderstruck, you know, uh, touched with, with a, I, I would say, a sense of the profound blessing of the, of the magic of, of appearances. Profound blessing of that, whatever the word is, that's more than participation. It's the profound blessing at, uh, at the mystery of things, mystery of appearances. Let's let's stop there actually. So and let's let's uh, maybe sit sit together for a bit. <laughs>
Thank you, everybody. And um, it's just about time for tea, so enjoy tea. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.